Hey, are you frustrated with your job search? Are you sending out resume after resume with no callbacks? If so, I have some good news. After three years of helping over 400 people land jobs at places like Meta, HubSpot, Google, Twitter, Amazon, Tesla, Disney, Sony, just to name a few, I created a course. In the Get Your Dream Career course, you'll discover best practices for creating a resume that stands out, and you'll also learn how to optimize your job search. It covers every aspect of the job, including resumes, application strategy, networking, LinkedIn profile optimization, interview guidance, and salary negotiation. You will also get a behind-the-scenes view of how recruiters use LinkedIn to find candidates. And of course, you'll get resume and cover letter templates. Get one step closer to your dream job. Sign up at the link in the notes below. LinkedIn presents. And I think you have to have that attitude going into this with no degree. You have to say like, listen, I want that doubt because then I'm going to prove you wrong. And when I do prove you wrong, I'm going to make sure you know it, you hear me, you see me. And if you go in with that attitude, that's it. If you take it as a negative and allow it to affect you internally as a negative, you're going to fail. If you take it as a positive and use that energy to say, I'm going to prove everybody wrong, it's amazing. Keep that chip on your shoulder. No degree, no problem. Any problem, we can solve them. LinkedIn insomnia keeps us evolving. We're growing in the knowing. The wisdom is flowing. If you didn't know, now you know where I'm going. Yeah. Welcome to another episode of the No Degree Podcast. I want to firstly thank you for tuning in and supporting our show. If you haven't yet, hit that follow or subscribe button. I encourage you, don't keep this to yourself. Share these inspiring stories with your friends, invite them to subscribe, and connect with us on social media. So today, I have someone from the VC world, Brandon Brooks. What do you do? <laughs> yeah, hey, thanks for having me today. It's always a pleasure to talk. And um, so I am in a founder and an investor um, exists within kind of the startup ecosystem. And uh, I always call what I do getting people involved from outside the lines into the startup ecosystem, into the venture capital world. And uh, I love it. So that's very interesting. Now, what's the blueprint for succeeding in the venture capital world? Because that's a rough world. And if you don't have a degree, because I know it's all like these Ivy League people, I went to Stanford, I went to Harvard, blah, blah, blah. So what's the blueprint for someone without a degree? Yeah, so I think, I think really the blueprint, there's no clear foundation for any of this, right? You have to have grit, hustle. You have, if you don't have those connections from like a Stanford or Harvard, which I do not, like I, I have no degree. That's why I'm here on this podcast. I, have, I never went to college. Just wasn't in my you know path of life, so I think the the real blueprint that I found is just having grit, hustle, and never taking no for an answer. And if you can do those things and and take those no's that you get and take that adversity that you face and and just like kind of laugh at it and play with it, you can find tremendous success in this industry. Wow, I love that. Now. what are the realistic salary ranges? like how much money do people make? I think people hear like, oh, you're making. $30 million, you're making, like, what are the realistic ranges? Because so many people have this idea and there's misconceptions. Like, yes, you can make good money, but you have to work your way up to that money. For sure. So there's there's different ways. If you go to work for a VC fund, you may be making anywhere from like 75000 to 300000 a year as a salary, right? That's 
that's probably somewhere in the average range. If you start your own VC fund, you're going to end up spending more money than you make at the very beginning. But what's really cool is you get this thing called carry. And carry, years down the road, may be the thing that turns you from, you know, it changes the zip code. It puts you, you know, from where you're making little bits of money to millionaire, billionaire status. And that's picking the right companies, helping those companies along, and then making sure, you know, those companies have some type of successful exit. And at that point, you have a percentage of the company that you own and that you carry as that that VC partner, and you may get um, a significant windfall. And that can happen just from one company. And as a VC fund, you you invest in several different companies, right? Depending on how you're how you're set up, so it can be very significant um, down the road. But you have to put in the work. You have to you know be patient, put in the work, and and really, it's about a lot of belief in yourself because there's going to be a lot of times that you're you're really not making a lot of money up front. Yeah, and you hear no a lot in the VC world. Yeah, actually, uh, I hear. N- no more than any other word in in the U.S. You know, in English language. So, yeah. but you get used to it. Yeah, I mean, look, you get used to it. It's a skill. Now, let's take it back. How was high school like for you? And would you want to be in high school? <laughs> so, yeah, I, I will say that I probably wasn't the best high school student. Um, I had a really different path. So early on in life, I skipped a grade. I went from third grade to fifth grade. So skip fourth grade. And I was in a lot of advanced classes. But once I got to that high school part, I think I got bored, to be honest with you. And, and I started getting involved in um, just different things that I probably shouldn't have been and, you know, started feeling myself a little bit and smelling myself, as my dad used to always say, I was, I was smelling myself. Uh, for those of you from, you know, the hood, you probably understand that. You probably heard it a few times. And so high school wasn't great for me. I wasn't getting great grades. I think I wanted to be, you know, an NBA player, an NFL player. I just, I thought I was going to be in professional sports. There was one point that I was, um, I was a rapper. None of that panned out clearly. And I just kind of went straight into the workforce after and, and, you know, did several different types of jobs. So what was your first job? So I think my first job, I was probably 15 or like first legitimate job, 15 or 16. I was bagging groceries in a, in a grocery store called Giant Eagle in Pittsburgh, PA, but then after graduating high school, I think I was doing like door-to-door sales for cable, um, cable companies that, you know, across the U.S. actually, we had to travel and do this. And it was literally knocking on people's doors saying, hey, I see you don't have Comcast cable, for example. We'd love to sign you up for Comcast and trying to get them to sign up on the spot. Some other jobs included like washing buses for a company called Port Authority of Allegheny County uh, as public transportation buses would come in. I would drive them through this huge like car wash, basically, and wash them, get inside, scrubbing them, cleaning them, you know, inside and out every day. We'd probably do, you know, 50 to 100 buses a night between a crew of us. And that was one of my other jobs. I had so many. Radio Shack was a job. Flipping pizzas was a job. (laughs) I was doing it all for a while. What'd you learn from all those jobs that still help you to this day? You know what I think? One thing that my dad always taught me was like, just do the best at the job that you that you have, regardless of what it is, whether it's bagging groceries, knocking on people's doors, or um, or you know, washing buses, whatever it was, selling cell phones at Radio Shack. Try to be the best that you can with that, and that just means you know, servicing the customer, always knowing who the customer is, always making sure you're servicing them, 
always do it with a smile. I love Chick-fil-A. I never worked there, but I love Chick-fil-A because they always say, my pleasure, right? And that's something I take with me to this day. Whenever I help someone out, send an intro to someone or somebody thanks me for, you know, whatever it may be that helped their company, I always say it's my pleasure. And that just, you can't like replace that feeling that that gives you when someone says that to you. And it's better than, okay, cool. Or, oh, you're welcome or whatever. Like that sounds kind of boring. But when you say it is my pleasure, it really, it really just emphasizes that you want to help them and that makes them want to help you more. And that's what this ecosystem is all about. So always do the best you can. Don't be afraid to get down and dirty and do the work. Like I was scrubbing literally shit off of bus seats, right? Like scrubbing that. And I think that instilled in me this thing, like I'm never afraid to get down in the trenches, do the dirty work, do what I have to do. And that helps me in VC and startup world because there's a lot, we maybe not be scrubbing shit off bus seats, but there's a lot of dirty work you have to do in here. Yeah, you got to get in, you got to get into the details because I've seen people lose out on a lot of money because they didn't get into details. Like some of the the ones that Elizabeth Holmes, people didn't go into the details, right? Like I think the WeWork investment, people didn't go into the details. They kind of just invested. But some people did do the due diligence and they're not the ones who lost money, right? So now you you held a lot of these jobs. What's like a funny memory you have from these jobs? <laughs> a funny memory. Let's see. The door-to-door uh, selling, that was probably one of the scariest jobs that I've ever had, but also one of the most exciting and and fun ones. Like we always had a saying, knock that first door out. And that was the hardest one, regardless of where you are knocking on that first door every day. It was exhilarating, but it was also scary. Like I've had guns pulled on me there. I've had um, people, you know, calling the cops on me. I've just, I've like done it all. But also it was just, it was really funny because if there was like two or three of you were that, that were knocking in a neighborhood, you would come over, oh yeah, I got this sale or, oh yeah, this, this old lady just called the cops on me and, or this just happened. Like it was just those fun moments and you, you learn to take those moments that are scary or that, you know, it gives you that worry and you learn to take them in and make them kind of uh, fun or funny. And, and looking back now, like it's all hilarious. I'm like, Lucky I didn't get shot in any of those experiences because, you know, I have I have a little bit of a smart mouth. And yeah. so sometimes if somebody would answer the door and like have an attitude with me, I just threw it right back at them. Yeah. Right. And it's like, you know, by the grace of God, I didn't get shot. Um, you take that with you today. And again, when I get those no's, you hear no more than anything in this in this industry. I just laugh it off because I've been there, done that and heard had way worse happen to me than some uh, VC or LP telling me no. Yeah. So now you had these string of jobs. What was your next big job? Like the turnaround job that you're like, okay, I'm making a lot more money and this is serious. That's a good question. So actually it's funny the the job where I was washing buses, I think I was making the most money at the time. Like it was like something like $30 an hour to wash buses. And yeah, it was like, it was nuts. And then there was like all these overtime opportunities. So that's actually when I when I really started my business. But it's so funny because at that same time, I was living out of my car. So like just life life happened, all these different yeah. things happened. And so I was living out of this Jeep Patriot and and had to, you know, pay that. And so I was making good money and working overtime and all this, but I still couldn't afford a place, you know, really to live. But then that's when I started my company and uh, my first company, which was Inventrify, the first black owned crowdfunding platform in the US. That's when I think 
the switch flipped for me that I started to understand and see the startup world, the VC world, and like how much money there is to be had here, how much, you know, opportunity there is to be had here. And so that's kind of why I've made this my mission. Like I want to expand that to people that were just like me 10 years ago, eight years, however long ago, I see the opportunity here. I've, I've been able and very blessed to take advantage of that opportunity in my life. And now I want to make sure other people that were in similar situations, whether it's homeless, working a job that you don't know, no college degree, working a job that just feels like a dead end, doing something that you feel like, you know, your life's almost pointless, whatever it may be position that you're in. I want to make sure those people have opportunities and then maybe don't have to make the same mistakes that I've made along the way and maybe don't have to um, go through a lot of the pain that I had to go through along the way. What gave you the idea to do like a crowdfunding platform? Because that's very different. Like you're washing buses and I'm pretty sure if you told someone like I'm building a crowdfunding platform, they're going to be like, what are you, what are you talking about? Yeah. So at one point, one of the jobs I had was at a bank, one of the, one of the big banks in, in Pittsburgh. And I um, was what they called an FSC, financial sales consultant, FA, some people called it financial advisor, whatever. And actually I was making like no money there. It was like, it was, literally, I think it was like maybe $8.50 an hour. So it was nothing. But when I was working that, a lot of people were coming in to get these loan applications, whether it was for a home equity line of credit, which is called a HELOC, or a home equity installment loan, which is called a HEAL, or different things. They were getting these loans, but they were using them to start businesses. They wanted to start these businesses. And I was like, wow, somebody's willing to put their literally their home on the line to take out money to start this business, which the overwhelming majority of businesses fail. It's like 95% of something of businesses started fail. And I'm like, these people are willing to put their homes, their lives, their families on the line to do that. I was like, there's got to be a better way. And of course, there's SBA loans, small business administration loans, there's all types of other loans. But I was like, you know, I want to start a local community barbershop. I want my community to support me because it's going to be a benefit to my community. Or I want to start an ice cream parlor. I'm going to provide jobs for people in the community. I'm going to provide them with ice cream or a nail salon or whatever. Maybe the community will want to support me. And so that's why we decided to start Inventrify, the crowdfunding platform, to allow that community to support these entrepreneurs who wanted to start businesses within their local communities. And... Um, so that gave me the idea for it. And, you know, I kind of sat on this idea for a while, but it was, it was really at a low point whenever I was, I was, you know, living out of my car, washing buses, doing this, that I said, what really do I have to lose? I should just start this business and, and go all in. Like, I have nothing, so I have nothing to lose. I'm just going to figure it out and go with it. And one step led to the next and to the next and to the next. And the next thing I knew, we, we had this amazing crowdfunding platform um, that did very well. How long did it take to do well? Oh, man. <laughs> years. I mean, really, realistically, probably about three, four years. You know, one big turning point for us was uh, we got a great partnership with the Pittsburgh Steelers. They were helping promote some stuff and local uh crowdfunding campaigns that were going on. And then actually at the beginning of the pandemic, one of the big things was a lot of Black-owned businesses were failing and people were looking for ways to support those Black-owned businesses. So somebody started a campaign on on it called, uh, 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 I think it was Pittsburgh Black-Owned Business thing that they wanted to, you know, help support Black businesses in Pittsburgh. And it was just, you know, 
contributions were pouring in. The Steelers supported it. Banks were supporting it, or local organizations. And that really helped put us further onto the map from there and, and get, um, get my brand out there a little bit more. How'd you secure the Pittsburgh Steelers partnership? That's an interesting one. Yeah. So it was, you know, I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, always supported Pittsburgh businesses. And um, one day on LinkedIn, somebody, one of the Steelers reps had somebody that works in the organization had just hit me up on LinkedIn. They're like, Hey, we see what you're doing and you're based in Pittsburgh. And we're surprised we haven't seen more about you. We would love to just set up a phone call and learn more. So we set up a phone call, we talked it through, and um, they were like, we want to be able to support you because you're supporting our local community that we support. And it's just, it, it just kind of worked out that way. It was randomly out of the blue, but it was because we were out there. Like we were risking ourselves, our reputation and everything to put us out there. And it, when you're out there, amazing things can happen. But you can't be timid to post about it on social media, to talk about it, to talk about what you're doing. You just, you have to do it. And it's kind of amazing the opportunities that come from that. What came next after the platform? So after the platform, you know, it was doing well. Then it was wanting to, um, as I learned more about venture capital, I thought to myself, wow, I see an opportunity here to support founders that are just like me because we never raised venture capital. I didn't even know what it was when I started. I said, let's, Let's you know try to figure out how to start a fund. So I wanted to start my own fund. I was just going through things and you know being active on Twitter. Um, my partner Janine Sickmeyer, she, me, and her were talking, and and we decided to start uh, a venture capital fund called Overlook Ventures together. We started that together, and then you know one thing led to the next. And it's funny that that's this is kind of what led me to my current what we're building. We're building my second startup now um, because I saw. The startup end of the journey, I saw venture capital end of the journey, I did both jobs technically, and I said, I think that there's a missing piece here that can help expand more than I can do on an individual level with a, with a venture capital fund, us starting our own fund, but I think we can actually do something a lot more for the ecosystem to help other people start venture capital funds and to help other people start businesses for everybody that exists outside the lines. And so that's kind of what led us to um, what we're building today, which is a platform called Zensu. And it hasn't been launched yet. We haven't released it yet, but we're working on getting the, getting it all ready and hopefully to launch um, fairly soon. That's awesome. What were some of the hard things about starting a VC? It's time consuming. It's a lot of money. You hear a lot of no's. Um, there's so much. I mean... You know, I think the hardest part is even still with my experience, everything that I've done, being a very public face and, and talking about all this, uh, there's still LPs, which are limited partners, the people that invest in venture capital funds that just don't believe in you. You know what I mean? They, they'd rather give their money to the existing big name funds that are out there versus a brand new small venture capital fund that's trying to prove itself. And so it's a grind. It's really a grind. The same way as starting a startup is a grind, starting a brand new venture capital fund is the same exact thing. It's you putting your name on the line. It's you putting your reputation on the line. It's you, you know, all day, every day on the phone. You know, if, you, if it has to be traveling to meet people, shaking hands, kissing babies, everything, whatever, being on social media, being out there, it's exhausting. But I think, you know, again, with what we're building with, with Zensu, the plan is to hopefully make that a lot easier because 
if you make it easier, the more people can get involved. And then I think the more of us and people that exist outside the lines that get involved, um, the better this ecosystem becomes. What were some things that set your VC apart? Just investing outside the lines. I mean, you know, realistically, when you hear 46% of startups that got funded last year alone were in Silicon Valley that's it, or, or, or San Francisco. That's insane to me. Like 46%. We weren't even looking there. It was just like, you know, we want to fund people that are outside the lines that are, you know, maybe the founder in Idaho, the founder in Memphis, the founder in Pennsylvania, wherever, South Carolina, wherever. And so that was a big thing. And then also not accepting warm intros. We didn't take any warm intros. So, you know, if you know me and you're like, hey, my friend's starting a company, will you um, will you talk with them? It was, uh, hey, thanks for the intro, but no, send the founder to our website, have them go and apply on, you know, overlookventures.com, but when they could go and apply. And uh, then, you know, we would go through each and every one. And so we didn't do that from day one. Uh, and that really, I think, you know, was was good. But what a big thing is a lot of VC funds, you don't really need a differentiate, a key differentiator. A lot of times your differentiation can just be, I have a different network than this person has, right? You know, the founders in Pittsburgh are more willing to talk with me than they are with, you know, A16Z who doesn't have a big presence in Pittsburgh. So it's just a different network, different founders. And um, I think that that's just the key differentiation for any VC fund. Yeah. Now, what are the realistic money requirements that someone like someone's considering starting a VC? What's like the minimum or what's like a range that they should at least have? Yeah, I would say uh, as of today, a couple hundred thousand at least, you know, attorney fees, getting everything set up, you know, creating a website, getting your presence out there, marketing. There's just so much that goes into it. But again, with what we're building, we hope to completely simplify and redo this process so that somebody doesn't need that upfront capital and we can kind of make it a little easier for people. Yeah. What are some things that people should know? Because I know the legal fees, sometimes like people can get killed right there. And sometimes they don't, if they don't do their research, they may end up spending a lot of money on the wrong things. Yeah. So I think it's get a a good attorney, try to get a recommendation for a good attorney that specializes in venture capital funds, that specializes in, you know, whatever you're trying to do. Um, because if you get that good attorney, they'll be able to work with you. You know, some will work with you and say, you don't have to pay us all this up front. You can pay us over almost like a payment plan, right? Yeah. And so that that really helps. Um, so put your put your attorney on layaway, essentially. <laughs> but uh, you know, there's there's a lot you can do. But if you have a good attorney that specializes in this, has done it before, then they're not spending hours upon hours having to figure stuff out. They've done it before so that they can simply do it. And actually I think with 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 AI and um, the revolution that is AI happening right now, that that'll make the process a lot easier and hopefully less complicated as well, because a lot of attorneys will use AI to do what could have been manual labor before. How is it not having a college degree in this space? Like, what are some issues or problems that you face because you don't have a degree? Yeah, I think the biggest one is just people doubt you. You know, they don't see that Stanford or Harvard beside you. But I, yeah, I love that. I like feed off that energy. And and I think you have to have that attitude going into this with no degree. You have to say like, listen, I want that doubt because then I'm going to prove you wrong. And when I do prove you wrong, I'm going to make sure you know it, you hear me, you see me. 
And if you go in with that attitude, that's it. So what I think some people can take as a negative, you know, that, oh, somebody's going to say I didn't go to Stanford or Harvard, which I've heard before, Princeton or wherever. Like, that's fine. I don't care. You know, if you take it as a negative and allow it to affect you internally as a negative, you're going to fail. If you take it as a positive and use that energy to say, I'm going to prove everybody wrong, it's amazing. Keep that chip on your shoulder, you know, always keep that chip on your shoulder. And when you look at so many of the greats, they, they don't have college degrees. You know, the Steve Jobs, the who have, there's so many, you know, people out there that you can say they didn't have college degrees. They just had grit and, you know, an unwillingness to give in and just like an unrelenting drive. And if you have that, it won't matter what, you know, paper name is beside your, your name on LinkedIn. What advice would you have for founders who are looking for funding without degrees? Because you're on the side that makes the decision and you've seen, you've been talking to these people and you have an idea of how they invest. So if a founder doesn't have a degree, what advice would you give them? Don't even worry about it. I mean, just don't even, you know, I don't think many VCs nowadays will be like, well, what's your degree? Whatever. It's it's more for networking. Like if you're a founder that went to Stanford or Harvard or whatever, you have a different network than I do or, you know, people like us here. Um, but just uh, don't even mention it. Don't even talk about it. Just let it be what it is. Yeah. No, I always tell people, don't focus on what you don't have. Focus on the things you do bring to the table. Yeah. Now, how has the industry changed over time? Because this is like a very fast adapting industry. And now with AI, things are changing. To be honest, I, I, I think it hasn't changed much. I think uh, the genuflecting, I think the um, kind of the virtue signaling has changed. Like more people do it and talk about it on Twitter. Oh, let's fund black founders, let's talk about women founders, etc. But if you look at the stats, they really haven't changed. Uh, so I don't think anything's really changed yet. But I think it can. And so it's going to take people like me. It's going to take people like you. It's going to take like the listeners here. It's going to take all of us to be those people without degrees, to be that black founder, to be that woman founder, Latina founder, immigrant founder, whatever it may be. It's going to take all of us to like force our way into this industry, say we accept nothing less and laugh at anybody who doubts us. And once we do that and we build the next generation of, of amazing companies, we build the next Apple, we build the next Facebook, we build or Meta, we build the next Uber, whatever the companies may be, we build those next ones, they're not going to be able to de deny our presence. Uh, you know, And I hope they try to deny our presence because we're still going to make it happen regardless. Yeah, we find a way. Looking back, what are you most proud of? You know, that's such a, that's such a great question. I really don't know yet. I, and I say yet because I don't know. I, I feel like I try not to look at anything and say like, you know, pat myself on the back saying, Hey, I'm proud of starting the first black owned crowdfunding platform. I'm proud of going to testify in front of Congress. I'm proud of going to, I try not to do that. I take every single day, like I'm freaking hungry. One day, hopefully decades from now, when I look back on everything, I'll be able to say, I'm, you know, I'm really proud of this. I'm really proud of that. But for now, I'm just in the day to day grind. I, I have to make this happen, not just for me, not just for my family, not just for whatever, but I have to make this happen. So, that all of us can thrive in this ecosystem. And that drives me. And so, you know, I'm still hungry. I'll let you know a couple of decades from now when we do this follow-up episode and say like, hey, I'm proud of that. But for now, I don't know yet. How do you maintain that hunger? Because I see you came at a point where you were homeless, you're grinding, you're washing buses, you're doing all that. And I've seen a lot of people get in better situations and they're like, they ease off the brakes. How do you maintain that? Because I remember. 
I remember what that's like. You know, that's stuff that I'll never forget. And I want to make sure that, A, I'm never in that position again, but B, that others that are in that position now or that may be heading towards that position don't have to go for it or don't have to go through it. And so that just drives me every single day. I remember it. Yeah. What would you say is the biggest mistake you've made? Oh, God. I don't know. How long do we have? We got, we got time. You know, I just think it's not knowing, not understanding. Um, sometimes I, in my younger years, was maybe really cocky. And, through, and, and I think, or maybe my confidence came off as cockiness. And that might, may have stopped me through opportunities. But none of the mistakes have stopped me. And so, like, to me, there's really no huge mistake there. It's just, um, it's just things I had to go through. Like, I wouldn't be where I'm at today without those, without those mistakes along the way. You know, it's like, um, it's, what's that one line? It's, it's funny, these same wrongs helped me write this song. And that's what I feel like is happening right now. You know, this beautiful song that I'm writing, all of the wrongs that I've made along the way have helped me write it and and helped me do it. So Now, how do you maintain the consistency? Because that's something that's not easy, right? You're going to have up days. You're going to have down days. What keeps you going? Never think about it. Never think about it. It's like, so, you know, I I grew up playing basketball and stuff. And one of the things that was, if I missed a shot and ran down court and got next time, I'm taking the same shot. I think it's called shooter's memory. Kobe had it, Steph has it, all of them, all the greats have it. It's just shooter's memory. You, I never think about it. I wake up tomorrow the same way I woke up today, to doing the same exact thing. It's just you keep going and going and going. I feel like that the minute that you get to comfortable or that you get to rest is when um, bad things start happening. I don't remember the last time I was comfortable or the last time I really rested. Everybody tries to get on these, you know, these podcasts or these Twitter virtue signaling rants. And they're like, oh, make sure you take your mental health day and make sure you do that. No, I'm not doing it. I don't want to rest because I feel like the minute I rest, I'm going to get comfortable with resting and then I'm going to stop doing what I need to do. So, you know, I feel like you've got to have a nonstop drive that just says, I'm going to wake up tomorrow and do this. I'm going to. I don't remember the last time I was on a vacation vacation. Again, a couple decades from now when we do the follow-up episode, I'll let you know what I'm proud of and I'll let you know, you know, uh, what gave me consistency. But I don't know. It's just waking up and doing the next thing over and over and over again. Yeah, and that is the entrepreneurial thing. It's just like, hey, you keep doing it because you have a big legacy and those big legacies take not two years, not three years. They take five, 10, 15, 20 years. And I'm really looking forward to that episode. Now, this is going to be very interesting. You see 18-year-old Brandon across the street. What do you tell him? You know what? I look at him, I smile, and I just turn around and walk away. I need 18-year-old Brandon to go through all the hardships, all the pain, and everything he did to to become, you know, 33-year-old Brandon, what I am today. I don't want him to change anything about his journey. No, that, that's amazing. That's a very unique answer. And I, I think it just really shows how much your journey has really taught you. Now, when you go present to like a group of 18 year olds, what are you telling them? Like what, what advice do you give them? Most of the time I just tell them, you know, again, to stay hungry, just like I always said, you know, and a lot of the times I go and talk in these underserved communities. So I say, your family's hungry. A lot of them have younger brothers and sisters that they're supporting. They're working jobs at McDonald's or a TGI Fridays or wherever. 
to support their family. Just, you know, a lot of them come from single parent households, whatever. It's again, these lower income communities, the problems that we all know they face and that I've, we face, um, many of us. And so I just say like, you know, stay hungry, you know, keep going, but know that there's another option out there. You don't have to be hungry, right? Your family doesn't have to be hungry. You can try to provide for them a better life. You don't have to go to college and put yourself in debt. You can become an entrepreneur. You can become a founder. And then I always try to tell them, this is one big thing, and I hope everybody listens to me, avoid MLMs like they're the plague. Or like it's kind of, these MLMs out here prey on people. They try to sell people a dream of what the founder yeah. dream is, but it's not that. You know, it's it's not yeah. that. And I see so many of us fall into that trap. Uh, I've had so many friends that have fell into that trap that I've seen personally. Luckily, I that's a mistake I avoided. So I always try to tell them, make sure you're avoiding those MLMs. Um, but then it's just, you know, do do what's right for you. Don't get, you know, have a dream. First, have a dream. But then two, go for that dream and don't give up on it. And I think, you know, everybody tries to say, don't give up on your dream or whatever. But they forget step one is that you have to have a dream, right? If you're that 18-year-old kid, you know you're not going to the NBA. You know you're not going to the NFL. You know you're not going to become, you know, the next little baby, you know, next Jay-Z. Whatever it is that, you know, whoever it is or whatever it is you're trying to do, have some type of a dream. And if you have that dream, then stick to it and don't give up on it. But step one is really understanding that you can have that dream. And that's why I try to talk to so many people about the founder journey, the entrepreneur journey, the startup ecosystem, venture capital ecosystem, how it all ties in together, because I think more of us need to see that. That's so true, because I see some people, they just don't dream big enough, and then they don't work towards that dream. Like Dreams take time to build. I mean, even if you are that Jay-Z, it's not like... He was hustling. He was doing his thing. He was making music. He was networking, you know, making moves out there. And again, look at where he is today, but that's a whole lifetime of work. What are some mistakes that a lot of founders make when talking to VCs? They don't know the story to tell. You have to understand that VCs are in this to make money, right? One. And two, uh, they, they need a huge outcome. Like, if you're a single person business, you don't have any employees and you don't have any investors and you sell for 10 million, that's a great outcome for you. You just made $10 million. If you have VC investors and angel investors and all this and you sell for 10 million, that's a terrible outcome for the VCs because they've wasted so much time, energy, effort, and they have such a small percentage of it that you know they don't what's called return their portfolio with that they're looking for the billion dollar outcomes they're looking for the multi billion dollar outcomes or at least like 100 million dollar outcome 200 million dollar so a lot of times i see founders try to say like oh yeah well we expect in 5 year or 3 years to be able to sell this company for 10 million 20 million or whatever and it's like that's not an investable business like just to, it sounds crazy to say because these are such large numbers to many of us but in the in the grand scheme, that's like you know baby numbers to a lot of these VC funds. So a ten million dollar exit is nothing to them. You didn't get them excited, and because you didn't get them excited, they're not going to invest in your business. Yeah, no, I mean that's something a lot of people don't realize, and because they grow up in situations where wow, ten million dollars. I don't know anybody with ten million dollars, but they don't realize like, yeah. hey, ten million dollars you share with ten people, that's a million dollars. Now you share with yeah. twenty people. Now you share with fifty people. Right now, it's over several years, 
that's not the same return. And a lot of people kind of have to really think about that. Now, telling their story, what's, what's something else that they miss out on? So they don't tell their story right. They don't realize the numbers that they need to return. What else do they mistake? What other mistakes do they make? It's really independent on each situation. I mean, I see a ton of just different stuff, you know, and I think telling the story is really the biggest one. The other one is not knowing numbers. You know, that, that to me is almost so silly. If you're going to put in the amount of time, energy, effort, like you are to this business, know your numbers. Like yeah, if, if you have customers, right? How many customers do you have? What's the average cost, cost acquisition or, you know, customer acquisition costs, which is how much does it cost you to get, get each individual customer? Know all of these types of numbers, your burn rate, which is how much money you're spending, you know, per month or per quarter, per, per year, whatever. Know all of your numbers like the back of your hand, because if you get into a serious conversation with an investor and they're really interested in investing in you, you've told a great story, you've done everything. And then now you get to the point where they're like, okay, well, what's your numbers? And you're like, oh, well, I think we have a couple customers and uh, well, here's our revenue. And if you don't know your numbers, how can you scale what you've already done? They're going to look at you and say, hey, great story, whatever, but we're out because you're obviously not the right type of person to be running this business if you can't figure it out how to repeat the success you've already had. So that's such a silly one, but you surprisingly come across it often. Yeah, no, I've seen it happen a lot of times where people, they do these things and I'm like, hey, you're going to spend money or you don't want to spend money because you're like, hey, I don't want to spend any money. It's like, hey, you got to think like a business. Is this going to save you time? Is it going to save you money? Because at some point you can't do everything and you want to be able to leverage tools and technology, especially today. Now, let's start to wrap up. What are your future goals? Expand access to the entrepreneurial ecosystem to everyone. So I don't care if you're, you know, uh, you live in rural Memphis and you are eight, 17 years old, you're going to graduate high school. I want you to know about the startup ecosystem the same way that you know about Lil Baby, the same way you know about Jay-Z, the same way that you know about Joel Embiid, the same way you know about John Morant, the same way you know about all these people in the NBA, NFL, whatever. I want you to know the startup ecosystem exists. If I can make that happen to everybody, then my life will be complete. My life's work will be complete because everything that happens that we solve from there is going to be phenomenal. You know, that person from rural Idaho may know the cure for cancer. They just need the opportunity to get it out there. Right now, they're not getting that opportunity. They may have the best startup that we've ever seen, the next Apple, but 46% of funding is going to San Francisco and 0% is going to South Carolina. Why? Maybe that person in South Carolina has the answer. So it's like, if I can make that happen, I'll feel like I've made a positive impact on the world because the problems that we can solve from there, it's just, we can't even fathom yet. And so um, that really excites me. That's my long-term goal. I think that's not going to happen overnight, but I work every day towards it. You know, everything I do with my business, when I went and testified in front of the House Financial Services Committee just two weeks ago, you know, it was talking about that. It's so. We're making moves, we're making waves, but I'm still hungry. We haven't accomplished that goal yet, and I'm still going. I'm excited. Thank you so much for doing this and sharing your story. I know you're going to impact so many lives, and I look forward to when we talk again and you are comfortable. Yeah. Thanks, brother. Give me a couple decades, and I'm ready to do the follow-up episode. Another great episode. Thank you for listening. Hopefully, this information was valuable, and you learned a lot. 
Stay tuned for the next episode. This show is sponsored by you. No Degree wants to remain free from influence so that we can talk about the topics without bias. If you think the show is worth a dollar or two, please check out our Patreon page. Any amount is appreciated and will go towards making future episodes even better. Follow us on Instagram or Snapchat at No Degree Podcast. On Facebook at facebook.com slash no degree inc. If you want to personally reach out to me, connect or follow me on LinkedIn at Janaid Iqbal, spelled J-O-N-A-E-D, last name I-Q-B-A-L. Until next time, no degree, no problem, nodegree.com.